0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Pallavi Sen, and I welcome you to the Play Place podcast. This podcast was recorded and produced on the land of the Eastern Kulin Nations. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all listen today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this event. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Victoria and across Australia. In this episode, you will hear from Helen Runting about play in its abstract and tangible forms. We discuss how play is or can be intertwined in the built environment and in the educational setting. Welcome Helen, Uh, I'll just start with, a very brief introduction. I am Pallavi. I am an artist and educator. And Helen?
0: Hi, uh, my name is Helen Runting. I'm an urban uh, planner and architectural theorist. I am um, also a partner in the practice secretary, uh, which is an architecture office based in Stockholm in Sweden. Um,
1: could you talk to me a little bit about your project at and pavilion which I had a chance to see very briefly behind you.
0: Absolutely yeah we've just arrived uh, here in Melbourne so it's a real pleasure to see it in the flesh. Um, suspended Activation is the name that we chose for this installation which stands about two meters high and is about two meters wide. Um, essentially uh, if you're visiting the pavilion, it sits in the middle um, and it looks a little bit like something between a jungle gym, a sun lounge, a very, very small sailing boat, or perhaps um, some sort of CrossFit uh, <laughs> equipment. Um, the idea behind it was to work with a structure that uh, suggested playground equipment and fitness equipment without necessarily dictating what was to be done with it. Um, We've been really interested in the office in exploring notions of fitness, um, perhaps quite appropriate at this time of the year when everybody's making and breaking New Year's resolutions. But um, I guess also looking into the feminist and emancipatory uh, potential uh, of bodily strength and training regimes. So Suspended Activation is a spatial installation at M Pavilion that um, explores the idea of um, equipment uh, that encourages um, rest. So it's about um, a kind of structure that one can loll around on that doesn't necessarily demand any response um, that allows bodies of different sizes to explore it um, in repose um yeah maybe that's that's enough of an introduction <laughs> <laughs>
1: that that kind of reminds me of at leisure wear actually like all the the many things that you can kind of wear that that indicate activity, but you can be, you know,
0: doing just about anything. (laughs) It's true. I think that they share um, a materiality as well um, because this structure, which is uh, made in in, in steel um, and we had a fantastic fabricator, Ellen Sayers, who um, did all the fabrication here in Melbourne um, and uh, wrapped around the steel structure are these layers of interwoven uh, physiotherapy bands, these resistance bands Bands that you're sometimes prescribed if you have a muscle strain or injury. Um, so the surfaces are made of woven resistance bands, um, which certainly have like a stretchy matte feeling to them that kind of reminds me a little of yoga pants. <laughs> so I think yeah. that you're on to something there.
1: Uh, how, long, how long have you been interested in playground... Or gym, even gymnasium, maybe a broad idea of the gymnasium playground equipment or the space itself.
0: Right. I mean, I guess as an urban designer, um, playgrounds often come up as a program that one adds to um, a park or public space in order to cater for a certain um segment of your public uh that is the little ones uh children and perhaps their parents as well um so it's certainly always been something that I've confronted as a design object um but maybe the current interest in in fitness traces back um a couple of years there's a few different um points of departure. The first is my colleague uh, and founding partner in our practice, Corinne Mutz, who um, had a stress injury uh, quite common to architects called mouse arm, where you literally cad too much and um, end up with quite debilitating shoulder um, and neck pain. So we had like these resistance bands lying around the office. And there was always an ongoing conversation about her exercises. And that was one kind of point of entry into this project. Um, The other was uh, through teaching and you mentioned uh, that you're also teaching so it'd be great if we um, can discuss pedagogy a little later but um, uh, related to a course called Fitness in the City which I teach with Maros Krivi and uh, Leonard Ma in Estonia at the Estonian Academy of Art Art in Tallinn Um, and there we ask students to interrogate. Um, this phenomenon of fitness that seems to be taking over our cities um, and really ask some critical questions like fit for what? Uh, fits, uh, who's fits? Uh, what does this have to do with contemporary capitalism? How do we produce our bodies? Um, how do we produce ourselves? So, um, yeah, you could say that this is an interest that's like looped through many different projects from personal to uh, practice. <laughs>
1: You know, I I want to talk more about Playgrounds, but I think you've just mentioned something that I was thinking about anyway, which was the relationship and also these exercise bands being in the office, which happened to be now because of this injury. But we see in a lot of, or I personally haven't, but I've seen photographs of them when I happen to come across anything about like, a new podcasting office or a new like software company's office and like the sort of like office being the space where all your needs and desires can be met and all your um, kind of bodily requirements can be taken care of and you can also have fun Um, yeah what do you think what do you think about that
0: yeah, well, I mean, I guess fitness is also, um, it has a history in ergonomics, um, in workplace safety, conversations around workplace safety in um, labour movements and their struggles um, for workers' bodies to be recognised. Um, also in rehabilitation technologies after, for instance, wars or conflicts that have left like large populations um, injured. So, in terms of the workplace conversation, I guess we can ask some critical questions if we picture, you know, a tech company with these (laughs) resistance bands and various like gym equipment lying around. And that would be, you know, what are we, um, what are we preparing our bodies for? And what are we asking of our bodies? I think um, in today's Uh, society we're expected to work incredibly long hours and to invest a lot of our own um, subjectivity our own personality into our work uh, sometimes pushing bodies to their absolute limit um, and in that case even a kind of harmless yoga class is about keeping your body running um, making sure that it's productive making sure that it's available making sure that it's uh, functioning for working for others um, or for producing profit within a broader system. So we have to be a little bit careful, I think, when we talk about um, leisure and when we talk about fitness in relation to its long history um, as a tool and technology uh, within the contemporary workplace.
1: Hmm. I in talking to you previously you mentioned how how playgrounds can um playgrounds in like different places during like different um in different cultural spaces and across different age groups can be um an index of our time and one, I guess, one, one example of this is the sort of like the, the grown adult office playground system. But like what are, what are other playgrounds um, that, you, that you think indicate that or indicate different values?
0: Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I certainly haven't um, put together an exhaustive, Inventory of this spatial form, um, but I cannot. Your favorites. <laughs> I can offer some observations from maybe the Scandinavian context where I'm based. Um, it seems to me that playground design is becoming um, all the more specialist uh, in. In its arrangement of activities uh, for children uh, in uh, the Swedish context, uh, especially in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a tradition um, in Swedish. It's called big liak, which means construction play, um, where children were essentially given like hammers and nails (laughs) and a whole lot of really dangerous materials and encouraged to kind of build their own world. Um, And this sounds hopelessly utopian and a little bit hippie and potentially rather irresponsible um, from 2022 if we look back. Um, But we could also say that playgrounds um, have become so safe that it's really quite difficult to hurt yourself. Um, We see a lot of technological um, innovations here, particularly in um, ground surface treatments um, that might be springy or bouncy that absorb shock uh, if one falls. Um, We also see a lot of kind of standards being deployed In terms of the height of various bars or um, particular pieces of equipment. So, um, I would say that the the playground seems to be more and more finely tuned um, in terms of safety regulations, which is good. Of course, we should um, protect children's bodies. But as a result, it becomes a much more technological kind of piece of equipment um, that perhaps requires, and this is a speculation from my behalf, but um, a little less engagement from the child, it's to be used uh, rather than created Um, and maybe that Mm -hmm. says something about where we're at right now. Hmm.
1: It seems like the playgrounds that you mentioned, the older Scandinavian playgrounds um, had a greater element of the child themselves being able to create parts of it or create sections of it um, if there was this building if i so how was that how was that programmed or structured within the playground was there um was there somebody who let, leads those activities or could children come in and do whatever they liked and yeah how did that how did that happen
0: yeah i mean i guess this was um this movement which was also um, certainly very prevalent in, in Denmark, um, but in the Swedish context was very much community-driven. Um, these spaces often happened in quite residential areas and were um, driven by, um, uh, like, town committees um, made up of engaged residents and parents. So it was certainly a, a bottom-up uh, movement. Um yeah, I mean, I'm not a historian of that period, but I do think it provides a really um, interesting uh, historical um, example that we can perhaps reflect upon um, and use to challenge our own preconceptions of what's okay and maybe some of the norms that we use to to design these spaces um, and also maybe ask some questions around safety, around risk, around what play is um, and around notions of production and consumption do we just consume space or are we positioned as active uh, producers mm-hmm.
1: I wonder also when 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 we are creating a space, um, and I'm I'm not an architect or a designer of any space, but I wonder when when we have like hopes or aspirations for how a space can be used, and maybe there's a there is a opportunity to overprogram that space, um, and maybe one example could be the push on creative spaces or creative thinking in a space, um, and then the other could be also like very spaces that are um what they are and it's the occupants who come in and they use it a particular way and it develops this kind of culture of use um and in our conversations you've mentioned how how teenagers use spaces and i was very interested in that um and in learning more about learning more about that
0: yeah i mean um Two points on that front, perhaps. Um, the first is with regard to this over-programming. Um, I mean, I think that's a really important conversation that we have to have because on one hand, we have some incredible um, cultural programs and some really inspiring curators working in public space and, um, Not only kind of activating uh, a space for a public, but also um, facilitating the production of local cultures um, and enriching, I think, people's lives. So um, I think we, that should be acknowledged. But at the same time, we see heavy commercial programming of public space uh, with uh, marketing led um, events as well as In my own discipline, urban design, a tendency to very uncritically talk about the activation of bottom uh, floor uh, spaces. So often that means shoving in like a cafe and hoping for the best. And this is a tendency that I think we have to really challenge Um, my office secretary recently did um, a, a competition proposal for a park in Helsinki with uh, another Stockholm-based office called Brum. And there we were interested in producing um, a really complex terrain that was built up of um, earth Uh, mounds um, that didn't necessarily suggest a particular use. We were interested in um, the idea of whether a landscape could produce a sport or a use (laughs) uh, or suggest it, um, perhaps producing something new. What could you do with this deeply um, complex uh, uh, ground plane? What new sports might emerge was a question we had. Um, And I guess that was a little bit of a critique of this over-programming. Perhaps we don't need to... Um, decide uh, in advance and then I also um, I also think when when we think about that I, I mean I would use the example of the teenager as like a ray of hope here <laughs> because teenagers by um, habit and uh, culture and perhaps even physiology um, go through a period where they Certainly, rebel against structures and norms, but also appropriate space um, really visibly uh, in the city. And in that appropriation, I think they they write over the expected uses. Um, there's this weird phase in your life um, when you're not quite a child and not quite an adult. Um, you often see teenagers like sitting in playgrounds, like maybe smoking a cigarette or um, doing something uh, that's like kind of outrageous, but they're also comfortable in these children's spaces because childhood is so close for them. So things that we have to, we can maybe see the teenager as like a transgressive element. Um, and in their like psychogeography, they like drift through the city um, maybe aimlessly in their loitering. Um, I think we can also see a suggestion um, of a really truly public use of space. Um, And that's why I lift them up as an interesting um, figure to design for and to think about, uh, because they really challenge these hard boundaries between categories like adult or child. Mm
1: -hmm. It's also, I think what's also exciting about um, a teenage period is maybe like interests that are shifting towards like more formal structures that dominate the next 60 70 years of your life but with the time of a child or the the yeah the leisure time um, and what that what that allows for um so you mentioned you mentioned like being thinking about maybe thinking about like these various users um, and without over programming or over, what would be I don't know what would be the word when you're when you're doing when you're doing it in terms of physical structures like maybe putting in too many physical structures and know that then that maybe nobody uses because those users are not even there but it's like the hope or the dream that they'll come populate themselves in those places um, how do you how do you think then that play or um, the scope for playfulness can be, can be woven in
0: to urban planning thoughtfully? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the key question here is like, who is the one getting to play? Um, urban planning is a really strange discipline because you're often often making these kind of regulatory envelopes where within that envelope, the architect gets to play. <laughs> um, you're defining the edges of action for them, you're defining the scope or the brief or um, what's permitted and what's not permitted. Um, so planners are really I think quite skilled and unique in, um, in the way in which they have to think about making space for others. Um, There's the obvious kind of public that they serve, uh, especially if they work in a municipality, then they're directly inserted into a democratic uh, structure where they need to perform Um, on behalf of their um, politicians, on behalf of their regulatory frameworks, they have a kind of, they're answerable to the people. But they also work with um, architects and designers, uh, developers, making space for those actors Um, to also play, I guess, in some ways, at least to design structures, spaces, programs, maybe uh, financial uh, systems, maybe ways of renting or delivering housing, selling housing markets. Um, So I think from a planning perspective, there's a real skill in producing envelopes of possibility Um, And the question of who that envelope of possibility is for. Is it for a developer? Is it for an end user? Is it for a child? Is it for a person who one can't possibly imagine in advance who could just be there? Um, These are really important questions, I think, and very difficult ones um, to answer.
1: I love thinking about it as envelopes. And now I'm imagining (laughs) the entire city I'm in. As these like ideas, some ideas or the build city and like shuffling these envelopes around of like what can happen Mm -hmm. in all those spaces. Um, Have you had to like maybe, is there an example of maybe like a tangible thing that you had to design or make keeping some kind of, keeping different users in mind?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, uh secretary recently in a collaboration with two other offices, um, SPRID, which is uh, also a Stockholm-based architecture office, and in this case was operating as a developer, and SEPTOMBRE, which is a, a Paris-based uh, architecture office. So the three of us um, collaborated on the design of uh, a housing block in a small or a region, quite large regional city called Linköping in as uh, Sweden um and that block was uh, we had the really interesting brief of designing student apartments and um apartments for older adults which means uh, 55 plus um and that's a really interesting they're two very different groups with like very different needs um and it was interesting to think through how one could produce spaces uh, where they might meet and for us I think it's not um hugely figurative or symbolic, Um, it's the smaller moments. So in that project, the fact that um, we chose to give uh, the student uh, housing a kind of um, entrance that would run through the building and lead to the rear uh, courtyard that would be used by, for instance, other residents of the block. Um, These small moments where, I guess, um, these uh, programs are allowed to collide Um, produce a tiny bit of friction um, are really interesting ones. So from our own practice, maybe um, that project, which is called Intervalet, the interval, uh, could be an interesting example of this kind of clashing or meshing. Um, But if we were to look to uh, Swedish architectural history, I think, um, for me, Peter Selsing's Kulturhuset, the the culture house, which is located right in the centre of Stockholm um, and is a stunning kind of brutalist building uh, in its own right. Um, But I think that, for me, that offers one of the best examples of an unprogrammed public building um, that allows this, like, super strange meeting between different uh, publics There's a mezzanine floor where old people sit and play chess. There's entries to um, the main theatre in the city. Um, So you have, like, the lobby and the ticket hall. Um, There's a series of galleries. There's a cafe that, like, old ladies sit and, I don't know, eat cake in the afternoons. And all of this is, like, located on the main square. And in a cold climate um, like Stockholm, that interior uh, space is, heavily, heavily valued um, and really held dear by um, so many different um, uh, groups. Um, so maybe that's an interesting example of, of this kind of um, uh, semi-programmed or complexly programmed public buildings. Um, when I think about this, though, I wonder if there's a parallel to um, the Indian <laughs> (laughs) context almost the diametric opposite you could perhaps tell us in terms of um very very uh, yeah other climatic concerns like I think even Australians are getting used to the like scorching heat of summer and this desire to like get out of the sun and off the street into something maybe air-conditioned there's certainly sustainability issues there but maybe the Swedes desire to get out of the cold uh, actually has the same architectural um, outcomes as in uh, warmer countries. I mean, yeah,
1: you know, because I was thinking about like where I'm living right now, which is this like very, very, very new building that's come up and um, what I find so fascinating is a lot of the new constructions rely heavily on uh, cap, what, what looks good as a JPEG and what looks good on, you know, next to this kind of immaculate skyline that they put behind it. Whereas it's like these buildings are the only buildings in Bombay. And there's like, there's nothing else around it. Um, whereas, and just, that's the photograph. It's like really shiny. and. What it doesn't have at all, which a lot of the older and we the housing complexes here, we, they're called they're called colonies, um, and they're just like a group of buildings surrounded by a lot of space and a boundary wall. And usually, you have dogs who live in there. There, you know, so there are dog, different dogs in different colonies, and people take care of them. There are cats. There are very old trees. Shade is such an important part of like what makes it easy to be outside or not. Usually, people would never. Like sunbathing is just not a thing at all. Like you would try your best to avoid the sun. And so many lovely spaces are just created from there being this sort of like Uh, underutilized areas like the roads within a colony because nobody would be driving that's where children play that's where you spend time and as you get older and maybe as you begin to have romantic relations that's where you could like oh see another person and you're there with your little sister or brother and we don't really have playgrounds here so those are the places that you spend time You, you know you take walks around and it's um those it wasn't made for that to happen in it, but that's how that's how we all use it, all the staircases alongside a school, you know, moments like private moments that you can have in those areas. Um, and now with these sort of, what I notice is a huge difference in the kind of new constructions is that because there's no precedent has been set for how that space is to be used. And because we don't know what the, demographic makeup of the building is that there are even enough children to act, I hate to say this, but to activate spaces in that way, or to kind of imaginatively begin to set a history for how a space can be used. It does feel like we're all waiting for what the space around our building can become. Um, until then, we are just inside, whereas before this, it was an all of an outside life.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it reminds me, actually, um, we had a student last year in in the fitness course who was looking at, um, oddly enough, the um, the traditions of street cricket in India. Yes, and, totally. <laughs> and he showed these incredible. Um, uh, photographs of you know what seemed to be such chaotic spaces <laughs> where you know it's not just one cricket game but like multiple cricket games overlapping and intersecting and um Ed, he talked about how this was you know very heavily formalized um in the introduction of like larger cricket grounds and um I don't know it occurred to me while I was uh while I was listening to him speak last year in, in our final reviews that um, in a way the game of cricket itself produces its space. Like maybe we don't need uh, to over-design our spaces but rather to imagine new games. Um, oh, I think yeah. that's, <laughs> that's a really nice challenge for urban design maybe.
1: What The street cricket reminds me of this, such a, uh, like the recurring recurring what even like films or anything where you want to show that there are children is like the the breaking window or car window because cars and houses and cricket are happening so close to each other that forever you are finding behind some parapet a cricket ball that has been thrown or so much of the interaction between uh, children and adults is like Children screaming to random neighbors and buildings, "Oh, can you pass down water? Because they're thirsty." Or "Can you pass our ball? Because the ball has gone off over there." It's uh, it's you are always hearing it, even if you are not participating on any floor of a building. You can hear this happening. <laughs> wow, I I wish I was there for that presentation. I think I know this only casually, but never, never in a studied manner. That sounds so exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and speaking of students helen you're a you're a teacher you're an educator as well do you um is play or playfulness something you incorporate or think about in within your within your classroom or within your syllabus?
0: yeah, I mean, I think that like it's interesting because uh, my impression is that within uh, the context of Swedish architecture right now we're inhabiting um, a very serious moment where um I think there are like deeply conservative uh, forces at play um within the architectural discourse that push towards you know certain forms of truth um, and we see this in discussions around robust uh, or um uh, perhaps uh, like a minimal aesthetic or um, a kind of very serious, quite masculine um, architectural expression that um, is really speaking to these kind of traditional values of um Uh, proportion or um, certain truths about how light should fall on a facade or certain ideas that maybe touch upon like the neoclassical. And in the face of all of that, I think there's like a deep desire to have a little more fun, (laughs) um, to maybe open a space up for the students where it's not just about right or wrong. Um, In a country with such a rich kind of architectural history particularly in terms of modernism um there are really entrenched ways of doing things um and it's a real challenge to open up a space where those truths can be challenged um and those challenges can fail and risks can be taken um so yeah sure um I think for me uh, part of the uh, one of the tools that I've worked with in, especially in my teaching, uh, with Karin Hoagrim, who are the other partners in, in our practice, um, we've often tried to use like humor as a way of opening up that space. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to see a kind of critical, um, humorous, culture growing from the bottom up at the moment in architecture we see it in um maybe internet humor uh memes dankloid, Lloyd Wright on Instagram there are like <laughs> a lot of <laughs> really I think really cheeky and playful um forms of critique that are being leveled at a discipline that's far too serious um and I see that as a really positive development
1: Wow. I, I'm going to check out Dankford, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think I I never, I, you know, I, that's right. I didn't think about like how memes have affected the, um, how memes have like somehow very casually in our casual conversations sort of, uh, opened up what we do in the classroom itself. And I remember that happening with, um, like, heavy theory around, like, art and art history also, like, suddenly being cracked open, and especially from by, by with people and ideas that may not have as much of, like, a massive written English language, written history to, to like, you know, stack it up against and coming through very different cultures. Um, I didn't know that half was happening with architecture, too. I'm going to look up, I'm going to look up (laughs) uh, Dankloid, right? And... I guess we, we, we need to be wrapping up now, mm-hmm. but I wanted to also just ask you if, um, if there are any games you play these days. Or has the, or has the last two years given rise to more games in your life
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a that is a great question i think the last few years have um, given rise to maybe a bit more time in the gym <laughs> um which for me is a really um calm space away from work even if it's a different kind of work. Um, but maybe at work, I think that um, at Secretary we play a lot of language games. Uh, we speak in Swedish and in English at work. And um, when you have two two languages in play, there's often like really funny word jokes that are super internal and ridiculous um, that evolve over time. And um, we just recently published our first book, which is called 14495 Flats which is a study of housing. Um, the only reason I, I mention it is because there's um, there are all these like strange terms that we tried to uh, retain in the book that are like odd or silly. Um, these typologies that we identified within um, new production in Stockholm, for instance, there's one that we call the big baby, which is like um, a building that, contains apartments but that looks like a single-family villa or a detached house, um, but it's too big. And we, we made this joke that it's like there is... It's sort of like taking an infant, like a three-year-old, and dressing them up as a baby. Like you, you would kind of know the difference. Even if they're both small, they're not really the same thing. And these jokes that emerge through chatting and language games, I think, actually can produce new concepts. Um, like for us, the big babies become this way to talk about an emergent... Um, phenomenon in architecture in in our city um, so yeah that's that's kind of where we probably have the most fun at the office uh, and the most play um, is verbally actually and um kind of running around uh, within the language of architecture and maybe trying to find new ways to to speak and perhaps involve a little bit of humor um in the process
1: Thank you. Yeah, word games. I've been, I've been playing Wordle. Have you heard of that? Wordle? No. Wordle. Well, you should try it. You should try it. It's, it's the it's it's the latest in the series of games that have been going on in the last few years. Um, I look forward to seeing your book. I hope I can somehow somehow see it if uh, if it makes it to the sides of the country that I want.
0: Watch this space. We'll try. <laughs>
1: Um, well, Helen, thank you so much. I, 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 genuinely wish we could, we could keep chatting for longer. And, too. Um, yeah. And I would love, I would actually love, I don't know if you've been to Bombay, but I would love if you were here and we were here at the same time and then I could, I could show you the spaces that I'm thinking of and we could even see actually we could see a lot of street cricket
0: all the time (laughs) I think that sounds like an excellent post-pandemic promise (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) thank you so much for the conversation I've really enjoyed having a chat to you as well absolutely thank you you're listening to an Empavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.